0: We all go about our lives knowing that time will catch up to us, but it never ceases to surprise when we get the call that an aging loved one suddenly needs more help than they can afford. What can you do? What should you do? Let's learn one option right now. Welcome to the Just Dumb Enough podcast, a show that acknowledges no one is always an expert by dispelling misconceptions with real experts. I'm your host as always, Colton Petrie. My guest today is Mark Stephen Poro. Mark comes from an interesting background of acting and business management, but what he brings to the show today is actually his experience being a caregiver, and why he believes it's something everyone should do when the opportunity arises in your own family. His is both a fun and sad story about the many struggles of an aging loved one, and the time he got to spend with his mother even when she couldn't remember his name. If you enjoy the documentary-style, at-the-dining-table type of story, you'll probably love this. Also, thank you for everyone that tuned into to the last episode and celebrated the two-year milestone with me. I hope you enjoyed the look back, as well as a look forward to all the things still to come. Let's give a hand.
1: welcome to the show Mark Stephen Poro thank you I'm, it's happy to I'm happy to be here I guess my author name is Mark Stephen Poro and um, I grew up in New Jersey exit 163 for those who uh, know the Garden State Parkway so which is uh, up north about 20 miles outside of New York City and uh, then I went to college in at the Ohio State University and I uh, got my bachelor of science degree in industrial design. And then um, I got the acting bug. Uh, when I was a child, my uh, my mother uh, got us all interested in the arts and we, uh, all of us performed at, at some level or another in the ballet. And um, uh, I retired at 10 after being fired from the Nutcracker two years in a row. And I thought maybe that's a good sign and let me get out of that. But I think the... Uh, the performance bug got to me. So I gave up my design career pretty much and moved out to Los Angeles in 1984 and started studying like crazy. And my goal was to get on the Hill Street Blues uh, series, which was one of the best shows at the time. And I wanted to be known as a good actor. So I studied hard and I actually got on Hill Street Blues as the assistant DA just for one episode. But uh, it was uh, an incredible experience of focusing on, something and uh achieving it
0: congratulations i mean that's really cool especially to set a goal like that for a very specific show and then be like this is where i want to aim and actually get there
1: it was fun and actually my design career helped me get that because i made a lot of good contacts in hollywood through design um there were a lot of people and especially in the power positions um a lot of those are the casting directors and uh, I got to know them, and some of them needed logos and stationery and things like that. And I ended up doing the national uh, logo for the Casting Society of America. So I met all the movers and shakers in Hollywood early on. Um, and so that's I met the the people from Hill Street Blues through that, and then audition. Of course, you had to be good, um, but the introduction certainly came through my design. Uh, so that was that was pretty cool. And then I gave up all that. Uh, when uh, my mother needed rescuing back in New Jersey. So I moved back uh, to New Jersey, which is the um, those adventures are the focus of my book, A Cup of Tea on the Commode. And uh, my mother was literally on her deathbed. My older brother called and said that the uh, uh, he put mom to bed. She just shut down. Uh, I was non-responsive, And he said the uh, doctor cut off all food and medication and uh liquids and said and said call hospice so hospice came and we were on death watch so i flew in as soon as i could and we uh uh we contacted the catholic church and uh, they delivered the last rites and we just kind of waited um but i started looking around the environment this was the house that we grew up in and at this point it was in our Family for over six decades, and we had we hired some people at this point, probably three and a half years ago, who were supposed to uh, oversee uh, the house, the chores, cook for my mom, keep her company. Uh, They didn't do any uh, personal hygiene, but when my mother needed help with that, we hired a a nurse's assistant to help with that. Uh, But none of them were really qualified to do this, and the people that lived in the house kind of took over and made this house their home. And uh, all our uh, family heirlooms and my mom's possessions were all sequestered in her bedroom, crammed in there. So she was really, uh, I guess, kind of a prisoner in her own home. So she needed rescuing. And um, she responded to touch. And I think she knew we were there. She didn't speak any words. She opened her eyes occasionally, but only looked at the in the corner of the room, the same spot every time she opened her eyes. Uh, but wouldn't say anything. She just and we thought, well, may, you know, maybe she's seeing something. Whether my dad, who passed at that point, I think 14 years earlier, and um, after a few weeks, she snapped out of it, and I think is because uh, she was surrounded by love. And um, once she snapped out of it, I I I was really kind of uh, uh, guilt-ridden, and said, "You know, this woman deserves better." So um, I I put into motion the um, the move to move uh, from L.A. back into my childhood home, and to fill her last years with love, laughter, and joy. And um, that's what I did. And that's a
0: a very big decision. No matter you know where you are in life, to just say like, "I'm going to give up the entire way that I'm living." You know much less to say, like, I'm going to come back here to take care of someone, like, those are big decisions.
1: Yeah, I was the uh, I, I called it the carefree bachelor. I had uh, no girlfriend at the time, I had no children, and um, I had my business at that point. I had a snack food business that my brother and I started to honor my father and his invention, which was this half popcorn snack. And uh, so I built a factory in LA, so I was able to. Um, fly back and forth every couple of months to make it up. At that point, our our business, we went nationwide for a while. We were on the Rachel Ray show as a snack of the day. And we were a big thing in the early uh, 2000s, uh, riding the organic. And and there was a, a soy. We had soy nuts in the product. It was mostly popcorn. But my father added soy nuts um, when we were kids because he wanted to get some protein and and keep us healthier and away from junk food. So we rode that wave and we were doing great. But at this point, you're competing with the big boys and we were running out of money to compete with the big boys. So uh, I was ready to kind of let it go at that point. So um, it was a big decision to move back, but I was able to come back and forth uh, between the coasts um, to produce enough of the product to keep our current customers uh, supplied. But yeah, uh, I guess a big decision. A lot of people say it was a big deal for me. It was uh, just the right thing to do. So there was no second guessing. I just kind of had to figure out logistically how I could do it. But um, once uh, I asked my mom if she wanted me to come back and take care of her, and once she, she said, yes, that was it. And then my, I have five siblings and they all uh, put their trust and faith in me also. And um yeah so i i had to i became a first time parent to a 89 um, year old uh, grumpy lady stubborn funny but uh she could be a, a a tough cookie at times so i had to uh uh learn a whole new role and uh learn about parenting and unconditional love and um, I cook meals every day, I had to change diapers and uh, and and my my goal was to make her laugh at least once every day. And she made me laugh quite often too. So that helped. the sense of humor is huge uh, in, in that predicament. And um I
0: mean, it's kind of an interesting dynamic shift, right? Because you're used to our parents generally taking care of us. Right. And then you're like, well, let's flip this whole thing on script. Now I'm in charge. <laughs> yeah,
1: I life. did uh, early on. I did say uh, at one point. I I, I said, uh, "Do you trust me?" And she said, "Yes." And I said, "Do you understand? I will do everything in my power to keep you healthy, happy, and safe." And she nodded. And I said, "That means I'm in charge." And her expression completely changed. <laughs> and I said, "That means you must obey me now." And she puckered up for a kiss. And I wasn't sure if that was a surrender or uh, wishing me luck, but it was, it was very interesting. It was like, okay, I'm going to let you you know, do this to a point, but I'm still your mother. And uh, I can, she was very good at guilt tripping. So she was a master. They say Jewish mothers invented guilt tripping, but Catholic mothers perfected it. And uh, I learned from one of the best. So I sometimes had to, uh, Reverse that and uh, guilt trip her, so I could get certain things done.
0: Yeah, that was her—her her issuing you the challenge. Like, well, good luck. Here we go. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, <laughs>
1: who is going to outlast who? Right. So, how long did you spend taking care of your mother? Uh, the 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 book chronicles. It was basically a three and a half year journey. Um, I didn't live with her right away. Um, she did this, uh, we called it the "the death thing, in February of 2011. And so I stayed with her for several months, and we had hospice there for six months. Hospice comes, and they're under contract for six months. But normally, when hospice is called, there is a death waiting at the end of their, uh, their time there. Uh, but once she snapped out of it, we kept hospice because I wanted to learn as much as I could uh, from them, how to take care of mom properly. At that point, she had bed sores. You have to learn to change the bedding uh, while the patient is in bed. So I wanted to learn how to do that properly. And so my uh, younger sister and I were very good students. So we we, we, we were sponges. We absorbed what we could. Um, so when they left, we would be ready to take over if necessary. But also we had the um, the person taking care of their uh, mom's personal hygiene there, and she was a horrible student. And we found out later she was not even qualified to do this job. But my my brother uh, took pity on her, uh, which I, I call him, I have a chapter in the book called My Brother Teresa. Um, he will give anybody a break, whether qualified or not, uh, if they're desperate. And so he can do that at work and stuff. But this was a bit of a bone of contention with us because our mother's life was on the line. Um, and so between uh, her, I call her Tammy, and um, uh, the two people living upstairs who were overseeing the house, house supposedly, uh, they were I, the Tweedledee and Tweedledum, to avoid lawsuits, um, I had to get rid of them. And being an Italian from Jersey, I had options. But I had to be careful because I wanted to be around to take care of my mom. So we had to, um, I had to be somewhat diplomatic and we made an arrangements um, and by Jersey law, I couldn't boot them all out at the same time. So we had to uh, come up with a compromise and also a compromise that would please my brother who hired them. So there was a little bit of a family tension there, but once they, I think realized what I was doing and the quality of care shot through the roof, uh, they yielded. And so once they were out of the house, it was just me and mom. And um, I, I would say it was great. I had a very unique relationship with both parents. I, I, being, a, I guess, an actor and, and, and being curious my whole life, um, I got both of them who were, my mother was a, a bit of a social girl, my father always said that, you know, she could strike up a conversation with a tree. But my father was pretty shy, uh, especially inside the house. Once he got out, he was pretty charming, but he was a pretty shy guy. And I got both of them to open up separately to me about their life, their relationship, because there was a lot of tension in their marriage. They were a Catholic couple, and it, it wasn't perfect. There was a lot of tension in the house, and but they were Catholic, so that till death do they parted. And um, so... I think with my mom, it was easy for me to take over that role. But then you've got to, you know, you're looking at your mother. Your mother's naked. Um, you've got to get over that. I mean, initially, it's a bit of a shock. I mean, this was also the first time I think I saw her. She had uh, full dentures, and she never let us see her without her teeth. And when she took them out, she was a completely physically different person. And I had to get over that and also convince her that it was okay to remove those in front of me because I have to clean them and you need to uh, rinse your mouth out and stuff like that in the morning and in the evenings. And um, so it was a bit of a shock, but you uh, you, you focus on the task at hand and uh, you you get over it and move on. And uh, the the goal was to take care of her and, and uh, so I had to pretty much take on that role of being the... Um, I guess the, uh, the, the the nurse or the doctor or whatever, who was not emotionally involved until after then I'd go, I'd go up to my room or something and then deal with it later. Sometimes it wasn't so easy, but in front of my mom, it was, everything is cool.
0: Well, and that's quite a shift too, that we've gone through because you had been called out and they said like, this is it, she's on her deathbed. And then she starts to recover and you're like, all right, I'm moving in full time And then this, you know, it goes from a very short time span to, you know, several years. That's quite a shift to have to like jump into. How long was that like adjustment period? Do you think where you're like, okay, I can now kind of, I can deal with the dentures. I can deal with bed changing. I can deal with some of the, like the day-to-day stuff.
1: Well, again, if you you focus on the tasks at hand, which some of those were immediate, so you couldn't sit there and go, oh, how do I feel about this? It was no. she needs juice. She's she's thirsty in the morning. She needs juice. She needs to get on the commode. Get her on the commode. The the biggest problem I had, and I had a line in the book saying, when I started this journey, uh, my mother ended up being the least of my problems because those people who lived upstairs were, they were there for another seven months. And it caused a lot of tension. My mother was okay because she had a little bit of dementia at that, t- at that point. So she didn't really deal with them uh, too much. Definitely not emotionally, but she was just like, you know, whoever's giving me juice is great. Um, but they caused a lot of tension. And so um, to help me relieve my stress from them, um, I started renovating uh, the entire house. But I did the basement first, which they had, again... Like most of the rest of the house, took over completely with all their junk and stuff. So I did a lot of banging and ripping down walls and uh, rebuilding and 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 putting new plumbing in and 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 redesign the whole basement while they were there. And then once they left, I, I continued with the rest of the house because another goal I wanted to do was not only restore my mom's dignity that was withered away with the three and a half years from these people. Uh, But also, I wanted to restore the dignity of her surroundings. And uh, each time I finished a phase, I would, uh, at that point, my mother could no longer walk. So I would carry her down to the basement and see the new basement. And she was uh, just very uh, delighted with that. And then when I finished, um, renovated the upstairs bathroom, I made it one big, it was two bathrooms because we had six kids. So three girls and three boys. So my father had a a girl's side and a boy's side um, bathroom. So I made it into one big bathroom with a huge bathtub. And I gave my mother her first bubble bath in years. And um, though she passed out in the tub, she looked very happy. And I took pictures. Then she passed out. And I said, great. I tried to do a good thing. And I killed my mom. (laughs) But at least she smelled good. Yeah. So I took her out of the tub, and I called the nurse and said, what's going on here? And She said, uh, you probably left her in the hot water too long, and her blood pressure just went down. So um, I I stayed with her, and 30 minutes later, she woke up. She had no memory of passing out, but she did remember the good bathroom. So it was a win-win.
0: Yeah, and I I guess that's something that is probably very, you know, frightening. Like There's a, a dichotomy there where you're like, oh, I am definitely like, I am the caregiver for my mother, but also when there is a, an abrupt medical emergency, you're like, oh no, I am not like I'm not specialized for this now what but do I, I played I do a
1: that? doctor on TV. <laughs> so I assumed the role, yeah yeah I was I, I think I would have gotten a lot of flack from my uh, my brothers and sisters if mom did uh, not recover from that bathtub scene. That would have been really bad. Yeah. I would have to make up a really good story. Yeah, that would be very hard. And I mean, did you have,
0: you know, I know, like you said, you're working on the project of renovating this house, you're taking care of your mother, you're dealing with these horrible tenants that are just in the house, you know, making it their own. Did you have much help during this period of time? I know you'd kind of said like your siblings trusted you to take over. Did
1: they come around often? Or was it kind of just you and her? uh it was pretty much us uh me and Mom my brother uh Michael who was the uh he lived close by so he would come on Tuesday evenings he would he would uh, make dinner and uh to keep in practice in case I needed help he would do the uh the night changing and getting Mom ready for bed um he wasn't the most gentle and I would <laughs> She was a good sport though. So the, the, the TLC is something he he doesn't quite uh, have. Uh, so I would watch that and kind of cringe and then uh, because he had rolled my mom over like she was a log and not, not his mother. So that was a little difficult and I hope you'll forgive me if I'm exposing that. But some of that I think is in the book. Uh, and then my younger sister who was very good, she came out more often, but she lived in Michigan and she had her own five children. And she, she and her husband had their own design firm. So it was not easy for them. When I did go to California, I would go uh, for one week at a time, pretty much for uh, uh, most of this journey. And my sister, oldest sister who lived in California, would fly in and uh, take over the role for me. Um, so that, that, yeah, so they, they were there at, uh, being as helpful as they could. I had the, the two middle children, Uh, uh, my brother, David, who lived in the same town, and my sister, Carol, who lived at the Jersey Shore. So they were fairly close. uh, They were not, they they decided not to do the hands-on stuff. That wasn't, it wasn't, which was probably best anyway. Uh, But they did other things. David took care of uh, mowing the lawn and and plowing the snow in the winter and things like that. Carol would uh, bring home-cooked meals and homemade uh, gifts, and treats for my mom and stuff like that. So everybody pitched in. I think in the best way they could. And I also say in the book, uh, all of us grew up with a, with very strong opinions. So it's probably best to have less of us in the room uh, making decisions because uh, friction will ensue if too many of us are there. Because we all know best, and we are each of us is convinced they are the ones who are right. Yeah, you're like we need one job manager for mother. Yeah, and 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 they were great because um, you know, a lot of times I, I'm hearing it's it's wonderful to hear these stories from people who have um, read the book and heard my story, um, and and they ju- they share their personal uh, stories and 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 journeys with their parents and stuff, and a lot of them had uh, issues with their their siblings especially, and um, uh, we did pretty good. I think they they all pretty much yielded, especially when they saw how uh, well mom was doing. And, and she was certainly happy and, and and didn't hide that fact from anybody. So they all, I think they said, hey, he's he's doing a good job. Let's back off.
0: And that sounds wonderful. I mean, to have like those, especially to get even more happy memories than, you know, if, if everything had ended very abruptly, like you wouldn't have had any of that. But right. were there also like, you know, especially if she was kind of developing dementia or she had dementia, were there... A lot of moments that were not quite such good memories.
1: Um, if there was any bad ones, uh, well, out of her six children, the only one uh, whose name she couldn't remember was mine. Uh, what I She had a, a, a wicked sense of humor, so I was never sure whether she was serious or not. But one morning I went in there and I'm the guy who is uh, basically uh, 24-7 care. So I'm wiping her butt and getting her on the commode and doing all the ugly tasks and changing the diapers and stuff. And so one morning I went in there and she says, so what is it I call you? And I, I thought she was kidding. But the look on her face said, no, this she's serious. I said, um, "I said you have six children. Name your children. And she rattled off all five except for me. And, uh, and I said, and, and she's looking at me, and she was completely blank. And I said, Mark, and she said, Mark, is that with a C or a K? And I said, K, I'm your favorite son. So I have a a, a chapter in a book that asks the question, does wiping a loved one's butt cause amnesia? And I have evidence that supports my case that says, yes. So will have to read the chapter. But um, what I did after that was I printed out my name, M-A-R-K, and big block letters and taped it to the ceiling because she'd be lying in bed. Most times I came into the room, should be lying looking up at the ceiling or out the outer bedroom window. So when sure. I would come in the room, she would say, hi, and look up to the ceiling for the reference and then come back and go, Mark. And she was very happy. So that we, it became kind of a game. So I would try to see if she could remember my name without the, the visual aid. And uh, so that, that was a fun little game we had back and forth. Because I'd say, you cheated. Go, oh, no, I did not. I said, OK, I'm going to take it down. If that's what you want to do, I will take it down. And she said, OK, don't take it down. <laughs> but after a while, she did. And that was in the beginning. So uh, a lot of and she had some very interesting visions early on. And um, uh, and most of them were happy though. But then she had other ones too. She was, insisted, her, both of her parents passed before she was even uh, married. And she insisted her mother was there to raise all six of her children and things like that. And insisted that I went to high school as did all my siblings uh, on Long Island where she went to school. And our high school was a 10 minute walk away as opposed to an hour and a half uh, car ride to, a, a Sawanika High School, she said. So there were some there were some interesting things, and I had to be careful. I I didn't want to say, you no, you no, you you can't say no, you're making this up or you're you're crazy or whatever. It's just like I, no, I don't believe that's true, and I can show you pictures of. It. So you, you, again, you have to. Do, it's very interesting. So you have to. I think empathy is a huge deal with this. You have to put yourself in their shoes. Or in my mom's case, the, the non-slip safety socks. Because uh, she never wore shoes again either. Um, because it's, you you have to wind it down and be at their pace, do what they want, when they want it, as best you can, unless it's uh, detrimental to their health. When she first snapped out of it, she started with pumpkin pie. Uh, and She hadn't eaten in weeks. So she started with pumpkin pie. Then she went to sherbet. Sherbet was a favorite. Eight bowls of sherbet a day. Now, keep in mind, she was also still off all meds, so she's eating sugar, and then she moved on to oatmeal. But she was back. She she was she was wide awake. I mean, she's on a major sugar high, a continuous one. But she was our our mother and and back, except for forgetting my name. It, it was wonderful. So we didn't want to change anything and it wasn't until probably a year and a half or so later that we added digoxin for her heart she had a, a pacemaker and we wanted to make sure that her her heart didn't race too much so that's the only medication I, I pretty much she was on for that whole thing and before that she was probably on a dozen pills you get the pills and you say well that's causing a problem so let's counteract that with the opposite and it's it's insane and i don't want to Go too crazy on the medical, uh, the American medical uh a, approach. But boy, I, I mean, the big farmer has got too many fingers in the pie. Um, and and that was it for her. She um she was depressed a lot, not a lot, but when she she went to a dark place with that and she would just shut down. She would never say anything really angry or anything, but she would be very stubborn and just stop. So she wouldn't eat at times and things like that. So we did give um at this point we had a doctor who made house calls which was lovely and she said we'll, we'll give her a mild uh antidepressant that's that stuff didn't kick in right away but that once it did it was great because one one day she asked me she goes why are you so good to me i said cuz you're my mother and i love you she said you're a good kid and i said the meds are working finally so um but it's amazing that that was it for the medications. So from from like a dozen to zero. And she lived three and a half more years, and most of those were pretty darn happy. She's like, Yeah, you're a good kid. And you're like, if only you could remember my name.
0: Yeah.
1: I should have asked. Oh, I didn't want to I, I didn't want to blow it. So. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, and that's it's funny. I would have had to have gotten to a point where I'm like, All right, look, mom, I got another 30 years ahead of me. I need to know just once if you're joking because I don't know if I can do 30 years of a guessing game like was she messing with me yeah, yeah. I've got you know I have two parents one of them is an absolute saint she would never joke about any of that she would be very easy to be like oh this is definitely like she's very serious the other one would absolutely mess with me especially if he knew he could yeah like that would be his favorite thing to do <laughs> so yeah. I would have to know like all right look I got so much time left. I have got to know if you're kidding. (laughs) Because I don't don't know if I can keep the guessing game.
1: (laughs) It's funny. So my dad dad was pretty sharp until the end. Um, I I got a similar call um, in 1997 from the same brother. Unfortunately, he was the deliverer of bad news. And he said, dad has 30 days from what the doctor says. So I flew home. I got there the next morning and uh, it ended up being only eight days. Um, But again, I stayed with him pretty much the whole time. And we, we, we had a great eight days, Uh, but he was funny until the end. And um, um, at one point he wanted to maintain as much dignity as possible. So he never let anybody wipe his butt. That was his thing. He was, I'm not going to let anybody do that. And so he, he managed to do it on his own. But the last time, that we got him up on the commode. Um, he had heart disease. So he was normally about 165 pounds, but now it was over 200 pounds with this water weight. So he was, and that was dead weight. You got him up on his feet and I'm holding up most of that weight. And um, so we get him over to the commode and my mother would uh, hold the, uh, the, uh, the, the toilet paper. And uh, after my dad was finished, I stood him up and he turns to my mother and says, give me two sheets. And my mother says, two sheets. And he says, I'm very accurate. And we all burst out laughing. I almost dropped him. Uh, <laughs> but that was the, uh, uh, the last laugh that we all shared together. And one I still cherish every day. It just cracks me up. But, you know, to the end, he was doing what he could to cheer us up. And it was lovely. With my mom, it was like, whatever you got to do, do it. You know, no. no. I mean, it was, you know, No problem, though. She still liked being the queen. um, At one point, she uh, I don't know where she got this. And maybe the other people who were taking care of her had this. But one morning I woke up and they're now they're long gone. So it's just me and mom. And I hear a little tingle tingle and I didn't get much sleep as it was. But, you know, so I wake up and I hear this tingle tingle and I follow it down to my mother's room and she's sitting in bed with this little bell with the Queen Elizabeth look. And I said, did you just ring that to summon me? Tell me you did not do that. She said, but of course I did. And I said, and now I will take this bell from those royal fingers and retire it. And she says, for God's sakes, why? I said, because I am not here out of duty. I'm here out of love. I'm not your servant. I'm your son, whose name you can't remember. And uh, but she it was funny because I don't know if she did that with the other people or not, but she was like, okay. And then um, there was another time where she said, uh, again, why are you so good to me? I said, because you're my mother and you deserve to be treated like a queen. And she burps. And I said, but queens don't do that. And she says, how do you know? <laughs> Which was a good question. You know, that queens are like everybody else, except we don't usually see that or hear that. So, uh it was good it was it, it was a good time it was uh it, sometimes very emotional i i did uh, get stressed out a few times and and said some things that i regretted before they actually landed um uh, on my mom but um uh that comes with the job the stress so the, the one of the main things you got to do is uh, you got to take care the caretaker has to take care of the caretaker um and, you know there's a reason in the uh, in the airplane emergencies they say put your mask on first because um if you don't take care of that stress you're not doing uh, anybody you're certainly not doing yourself any good but you're not going to be taking care of your patient the way you should so uh that was a tough lesson for me because once those people were gone i figured ah eh, i'm I, I can handle this it's not no big deal and it creeps up on you and um it got to a point where my mother almost outlived me. I had some uh, a, a medical issue where I had to go into in over three months I had to go for three emergency surgeries. and the first one they said because um, I had this uh, diverticulitis, which again again, you, you know you're a guy, I have this thing. it felt like somebody shot me in the stomach. but I you know I said, ah, no big deal. I'll worry about it. And I had a major fever that night. And um, uh, the next day, it seemed to go away. So I figured uh, we're okay. So um, then the next day, it came back with a vengeance. And we, we did this back and forth for about four days. So I finally, on a Friday, drove myself to the emergency room. And as soon as I mentioned the location, which was lower left, they said diverticulitis. And I had no idea what that was. Um, and not only was it that, but it was perforated. Meaning, my whole body was infected now, and they said if I waited just a little bit longer, I, I would be—it would be in my bloodstream, and I would have been gone. So that's an interesting reality, and and the first thing in my mind is who's going to take care of my mother. So uh, I called my brother, and uh, okay, one bad word. Uh, so I called my brother. I said, Mike, I'm in the emergency room. And it looks like it's pretty serious. So we're going to have to get somebody to fill in for me for a few days. And I heard, oh, shit. and I wasn't sure if that was uh, in response to my predicament or his because he had to hire someone else now. Um, so but one one good thing about that experience. I mean, I was in there. Uh the first surgery wasn't too bad, but then I had to go in two weeks later to fix something they screwed up in the sec- the first surgery. So I had to go through another emergency surgery uh, about three weeks later. But my goal the whole time was I've got to get back to work. So I need to heal quickly. And again, goal setting, I guess it was it was unexpected one. But I said, I got to get back and I got to take care of my mom. Um, and then eight months later, I got hit with another uh, uh, problem from uh, the, the first two surgeries. And um, after that, we we had to hire someone full-time to do the heavy-duty work. I was still there, uh, more of a supervisor position at that point. And then on Sundays, I took care of uh, every, filled in again on everything because we had a, a lady who came in who was great, just absolutely fantastic. Um, on Sundays, she took off. So um, I filled in completely on Sundays and managed to, to do whatever we needed to do until, um, until my mom really started shutting down after, um, after like close to three and a half years. And then I took over completely for that one. Cause I was not going to let my mother go uh, without me being there. So yeah. Uh, caretakers need to uh, take care of themselves. Yeah. I, l- I learned that the hard way.
0: I imagine you're know, going through this. Like you said, it, it had given you like a a purpose where you're driving forward always thinking about like i gotta take care of mom do you think that made it harder on you when the end did finally come or do you think it was a little easier because you're like i got to have all of this time that i never thought i would have and i got to see you know a whole different side of her do you th- do you think it was easier or do you think it was harder
1: wow it's that's a, that's a good question um I I get, again, I I think in the moment, um, well, I think because of my acting experience, I always tried to observe from a distance, as well as take care of the things you need to take care of right away. But always observe from a distance. I was taking notes, photographs, videos, all kinds of stuff, because I knew I was going to document this somehow for the family to know. Uh, our journey, because a lot of them were not here for all those intimate moments and stuff, and I wanted to share those because we had we had so many lovely ones, and um, so I I I didn't let it all sink in until after the funeral. I was with her. Um, I guess five days barely slept. Again, we're, this was a serious death wash now. So I'm hold, holding her hand. Uh, uh, a nephew of mine came for two nights and held her opposite hand, and um, and then my brother came another night and he held her hand. And I just it's, it's, you know when she opens her eyes, which was rare at that point, I wanted to make sure she saw a smiling face and knew that we were here. She's gonna she's gonna be surrounded by love. Um, so that was the main thing. Uh, I, I was certainly dead tired and and. Uh, 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 but i didn't let the emotions get the best of me until i think after then after was tough and then it took me several years before i could write the book because even now when i'm reading parts i i i'm i'm not shy from, <laughs> from tears so uh, uh i still uh will will break down on certain moments some that aren't even that sad but i just knew how special it was and it really gets to me but th- that's a good question i'm i'm not sure what the answer is but and um, uh, I, I, again, I set a goal. I said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to be with her. I was with my dad when he took his last breath, along with one of my sisters. And then uh, uh, when mom uh, was ready to go, I was there. And then my other sister was with me uh, on that. So that was very important. And she was able to, um, as my dad did, it, it, You know, they have like a, a last wish or a last meal or something. So for my dad, it was hot chocolate. So we gave him hot chocolate and uh, he had a couple of sips before he passed out again. And then with my mom was coffee, ice cream. So back to the sugar. And um, uh, she took a couple uh, of of spoonfuls, uh, but that's what she wanted and that's what she got. And um, her last words, I couldn't hear them, but she mouthed, I love you. She opened her eyes and looked at me and said that. So that was lovely because it's very important to know that she knew I was there. So that certainly made it easier. Yeah. So I would say selfishly that that made it easier for me because I wanted to make sure she knew. Um, Yeah, of course.
0: And then, you know, like you said, obviously you needed time for yourself, but you chose to write this book. Was there like, you know, a reasoning behind it? Did it help you, you know, share it with your family or, you know, what what drove you to write?
1: Well, um, I'm a writer. So um, in, in, when I was in Hollywood, I, I used to do stand-up. So I wrote jokes. I wrote improv, settings, scenes, uh, and then screenplays. Um, I had a greeting card line for a while and stuff like that. So I, I think I always had some writing, which was surprising because I, I can't remember a book I read in high school. So <laughs> Hollywood got me to write. And part of that was, uh, I have to say this, Bobby Hoffman was a, a casting director in Hollywood who cast... Um, uh, happy Days, Laverne and Shirley, and, all, and, and some of the soap operas also. And I took a class with him, which was basically an audition-type class. And he said in the first class, it was like it's a six- or eight-week course, he said, you will write a scene, and you will cast it. You won't be in it. You will cast it and know what, it is, what it's like to be a casting director. And uh, they will perform it. And I freaked out. Um, I did some dabbling before that, but not not a serious scene. And it was not that the scene was serious, but serious writing and freaked me out. But I got so jazzed by that. And, um, and then I took another course with him who he gave to me free because he liked the energy I added to the class, which was lovely. So I got to write a couple of scenes and I cast it and the actors did an amazing job with it. And I said, this is very cool. So I got into that. So, um, but while I was doing this, I had some friends who heard uh, that I was home taking care of my mom. And a, a, one of them called me a hero for doing this, which I said, no, I'm just doing what I think is right. So it's, to me, it's not a big deal. It's it's honor your mother and father. What better way to do that? Um, but I thought, wow, you know, if this is resonating with her... And there was another friend of mine who was very close to our family. She was my brother's, older brother's uh, girlfriend for four years. And I hadn't realized how close she was to the family. She and I were in the same class. David was two and a half years older. Um, she uh, contacted me uh, and emailed me and said, I want to write your mother a letter. It's very important for me. And I said, great, okay. I said, I don't know if she, I'll read it to her if she can't read it. I don't know how good her eyes are. Obviously, she not remember doesn't remember my name, so, so I asked my mom. And this is a person, lovely, but my mother hasn't heard from or about in probably forty-five years. So I said, "Mom, do you remember Kathy?" "Oh, yes, I remember Kathy." And I'm like, "Yes, of course, because Kathy does not wipe beer butt." So again, that's adding more evidence. So, um, I knew I had something there, and also that uh, you know most of this. Um, caregiving falls on the daughters and on women in general. I think it's over 60 something percent. So uh, it it seems to be even more rare that a son takes this on. So um, that seemed to get people's attention. So I I, I knew I had something there and then uh, writing it and, and structuring it and stuff. Uh, was a, a long process. It took me a number of years. I didn't start seriously writing it until I, I moved to France, which was in 2016. So my mother passed in 2014. So um, it took at least a few years for that. And then those were still difficult. But I, yeah, I, I knew I had something and my, my goal is to inspire others. But also, I've done a lot of documenting of uh, family history uh, for, for our family. Um, I took my dad to Italy in 1995 uh, to the little village that his father came from when he was 10 years old and it had been 100 years since Aporo had been back to that village. And I shot a documentary of this thing. And I've got, uh, you know, pictures of my dad knocking on his father's house door, uh, which was remarkable. And in the backyard of that house, again, it's been 100 years. Now, there were some other people there, and I'm sure some uh, more stuff in the backyard, but there was a lot of junk in that backyard. And my parents, especially my dad, were pretty much junk collectors. I call them the recyclers. Very rarely did anybody, anything ever leave our house. It was always there waiting for some kind of repurposing. So in the backyard of this house, in this little mountaintop village in, in southern Italy, There was a pile of junk in the backyard, and I have my dad on camera picking up the junk and saying, this must be why we don't throw anything out at home. (laughs) It's in the genes. So I guess my grandfather and great-grandfather were uh, recyclers also way before their time.
0: Yeah. You're like, apparently it is genetic. (laughs)
1: Yeah. Yeah you can purge i'm not i'm not uh I, i'm not a victim of that i i my, my i think my two brothers are uh but no no i i i i move when you move often you purge so the purging is good but so the, the uh so i had that documentary of that then i wrote a screenplay uh, loosely based on that trip which had a lot of family history on it and then um, uh, I do these memory books for family members um, uh, when they hit a big decade, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60. I did it for my aunts when they hit 80. And um, so that those are lovely because we have a... I invite other family members to uh, chip in memories and uh, the reactions from the recipient are just amazing. So this was, I think... Um, a normal extension of just uh, mem- mem- memorializing family history, and there's a lot of uh, stories that my siblings never knew about, which was interesting. I was waiting to hear their reaction, so they've all they've all chimed in, and I um, think we're, we're still good. <laughs> I was worried about something because uh, one one uh, review said he's brutally honest, but there's all, uh, I, I I made sure because both of my parents were pretty funny people. And uh, I inherited some of those genes that there's a lot of laughs in there, too. There's a lot of a lot of fun stories. And and growing up in that house uh, was lovely. And um, there's a lot of people from my hometown in New Jersey that I found out about this book who are reading it. And and they sharing stories about uh, our our house and uh, my parents and our hometown and stuff like that. And it's just been lovely.
0: Wonderful. So now you've written the book that's out published you know people are like you said they're reading it you're doing shows like this one do you have a message in particular that you like to leave people
1: with well I, I have uh, I, I guess my motto is and, and, and I, I'm not sure exactly when this came about but um, it's it's how I live I guess I, I find the joy no matter what the situation is you have a choice and good or bad or, or, or stressful or whatever, find the joy in it focus on on, on that and boy that it just makes it so much easier um, and not only does it make it easier for you it makes it easier for those people around you because there's a lot of time where people are all stressed out if you could make them laugh uh, crack them up do something to get their mind out of that whatever that's causing that stress just to, to think of something different there was a, a lady one time i was at um a friend, visiting a friend's design firm in LA. And there was a, a, a neighborhood lady that apparently a lot of the people from this company um, parked and blocked her driveway quite often. So she was angry. And whenever she came uh, to the front door of that office, it was right on Beverly Beverly Boulevard, um, they would all hide. And I was there one day and someone just delivered a box of chocolates as a gift. It was like a printer, you know, trying to uh, I guess flatter the designer, so they usually bring gifts. So there was a box of chocolates, and this woman came in, and I saw everybody just—they're like cockroaches. With the lights going on; they're just hiding. And and then the woman just starts, "Someone blah blah blah," and I looked at her. This is the first time I've seen her, and I said, "Madam, would you like a chocolate?" And her face completely changed. She had no idea what to do. She smiled and she said, "Well." I would love one, but I need to watch my weight. And I said, Madam, I'm looking at you and you don't need to lose nothing. And I handed her a chocolate and she floated out of that building. And the rest of the people, they <laughs> they erupted in applause. And I just looked at them and said, there's no miracle here. Be nice to this woman. You guys, apparently have caused problems. There's a way to handle that chocolate doesn't hurt either.
0: (laughs) Fantastic. Well, a great message to leave people with. And I want to make sure anyone that's heard this and has enjoyed it, like I have, has a way to find you and a way to find your book. So why don't you tell everyone where to do that?
1: Well, the book is a cup of tea on the commode. It's on Amazon and a lot of other online retailers. But if you want some more information, go to a cup of tea on the commode.org. Also, uh, I have a YouTube channel with about 130 small uh, teaser videos, a lot of them are very funny, and um, I mean, I'm on Facebook, LinkedIn. Uh, I do TikTok videos also, but the most popular ones are the Facebook and the um, uh, and the YouTube channels. If you want to watch the videos, but uh, and currently it's on sale at Amazon for three dollars and fifteen cents off the paperback. But it comes a paperback, ebook, and also large print. And the audio book hopefully will be available close to uh, Christmas time. Fantastic.
0: Well, and if people go pick it up, as I always remind people, please, pretty, pretty, please leave a review because a good review helps promote the books you like and the authors you like, and then more
1: people can find them. Yes. Thank you for that. (laughs) Yes.
0: Well, and thank you for being here. I have appreciated your time immensely. This has been a great conversation. Just thank you for being here.
1: Well, it's a, it's an honor uh, to do this and to meet you and uh, uh, and and to share my story and and, uh, and introduce my mom and and my dad to uh, to a new audience because uh, they they were a kick. So enjoy.
0: I hope you did enjoy that. It was a very different style than we usually do for the show, but I like to shake things up sometimes. You all don't get totally bored of me. We're now into October, and here's the ranking so far. Number one, the United States, led by Washington, Arizona, and Pennsylvania. An odd three states to be in the lead, but I like it. Number two, the United Kingdom, with England just barely beating Northern Ireland. Number three, Bulgaria. Welcome to the top three. I... Fear I don't know enough about Bulgaria to pull off an inside reference, so share some things with me. Number four, Canada, with an unusual tie between Alberta and British Columbia. It's good to see a different name up here for their first time in a long time. And number five, Nepal. Welcome to the top five. I'd be fascinated to hear how you found the show. Anyway, that's it for this week. Have a great weekend, and I'll see you all back here for the next episode. Until that next episode, please do all those things that help the show grow. Rating, reviewing, liking, and subscribing. You can reach out to dumbenoughpodcast at gmail.com, or on any of the social media pages if you want to reach me personally. But most importantly, stay dumb.